Good morning, Woodland. How are you today? Good. <laughs> I'm glad that you are here with us in this space. I'm, at, I'm really glad that you are joining us on the line. Um, and I do, I feel like the mothers are getting just triple blessings today because I, I know that, um, you know, for mother, Mother's Day, for some people, this is a, a wonderful holiday. Um, it's filled with lots of good memories, and there's a time of closeness and intentionality about blessing the mothers in our lives. I also know that it's more complex than that. I thank you. I thank Paige so much for her beautiful prayer over us. Um, because for me, Mother's Day is a mixed bag. I get to go home, and my family is building an outdoor space for me with a pergola, and we're putting up my daughter's trampoline. And I just have like one goal of being able to sit outside with a book underneath these twinkles lights that I bought last, last year on sale. I just want to see them up in my backyard, and I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm also really sad because this is my third Mother's Day since my mom passed unexpectedly. And, and I know that for many of us, Mother's Day is that mixed bag. And so um, before I jump into our passage today on the Sermon on the Mount, I just wanted to offer a blessing to those of us who, um, who are experiencing motherhood um, in a variety of different ways. And so if you are a, a mom, as DeLon uh, laid out for us, a mentor to many, um, I want to encourage you to extend your hands as if you're receiving a gift. And I will pray this blessing over us from um, pastor and author Hannah Carden um, called To the Moms Who Are. So receive this blessing. To the moms who are struggling, to those filled with incandescent joy, to the moms who are remembering children who have died and the pregnancies that miscarried, to the moms who decided other parents were the best choice for their babies, to the moms who adopted those kids and loved them fierce, to those experiencing frustration or desperation and infertility, to those who knew they never wanted kids and the ways they have contributed to our shared world. To those who mothered colleagues, mentees, neighborhood kids, and anyone who needed it. To those who are remembering moms no longer with us. To those moving forward for moms who did not show love or hurt those they should have cared for. Today is a day to honor the unyielding love and care for others that we call motherhood. Wherever we have found it, in whatever ways we have found to cultivate it within ourselves, so may you, mentors of many, be blessed, experience the delight and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Well, in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina just destroyed everything that I knew, my home, our ministry, um, our plans for the future. My husband and I decided that we needed to figure out a new place to live and start our lives. We had a small family at that point. Our oldest, Tyson, was only three at that, at that time. And I was eight and a half months pregnant with our second boy, TJ. I was literally due any time that month. And we were, um, we were trying to figure out where to go next. So we had evacuated to my family's home in southeast Texas. Um, but we knew that that wasn't a place where we could stay long term. And my husband had always wanted to go to seminary. And he pulled me aside about a year before Katrina. And he said, babe, my theology is just way too heretical for any standard 
theological seminary. Like, I, I, I can either go to Gordon-Conwell on the East Coast or Fuller on the West Coast. And so when he reminded me of, this, of what he said, I said, listen, babe, LA has earthquakes, and I've had my feel of natural disasters. Like, no. So we had decided to move to Boston, sight unseen, for him to go to Gordon-Conwell. And my mom had so many anxieties about this move. And so she was afraid that she wouldn't see me anymore because she, didn't, she couldn't figure out how she would be able to make the trek from Texas to Boston on a regular basis to be with me and my children. And she, she just she didn't want us to move. And so before we loaded up and moved to Boston, we made a promise that we would talk every single day. And we did until she passed. And so, um, and so we got to Boston, and we finally got settled in our new apartment. And I, the very first thing I wanted to do once we got settled in was to walk my mom through my apartment. And this was, this was the days of, like, flip phone with pixelated, grainy pictures and, like, the hope and dream that if you send a picture to somebody that maybe their phone could pick it up. But more than likely, they didn't. And so you're left in this limbo, this frustration of, of, of trying to communicate something through picture. And so we just didn't even try. And so. I, you know, scheduled our, our regular phone call, and I said, I'm going to tell you everything about this apartment, Mom. And so I picked up the phone, and I called my mom, and I said, okay, Mom, this is the best apartment I've ever lived in. It's beautiful. I have this old hardwood floor that's gleaming, like I just know, like, centuries of people lived on this floor. And she's like, okay, easy to clean up, good job, good job. I'm like, yes, Mama, I know. And then I said, Mama, like if I look on either side of my door, my front door and my back door, they both open up to these beautiful courtyards with all these trees. And on the phone, I was like, oh my gosh, Mama, I just saw a bunny rabbit. And she was like, okay, good. Like, you like nature, all right. She, she was feeling good. She was like, okay, you have a place to go and get away from the kids. And then I was like, and Mom, if there's three bedrooms, like we only have two kids and now we have room for more. She's like, child, you don't need any more babies. Like, I know, Mama, but I still have all the room to grow. And I said, but Mama, do you know what the best part about this apartment is? And she's like, what? I said, Mama, this apartment is three minutes away from a Target. And she's like, oh, baby, that's not good for you. And I was like, I know, but I'm still going to go. And Target really became my happy place. You know, I had, I had three under three because three months later, we found out we were pregnant with our third daughter, our third child, Trinity. So I had three children, like three littles. And so Target became my place where when TC would come home from work and school, he'd be with the kids. I would just go and get a Starbucks and just wander around looking for those beautiful clearance stickers. I mean, do I need another colander? I don't know, but I mean, it's on sale. And so I just really like that became the place I went to um, and I kind of needed a break. It also was the place I got all of our supplies and all of our groceries. And so, of course, some of these Target trips I would bring my children. And Target was my happy place until my eight-year-old son found out about Pokemon cards. Now, I'm not going to try to explain Pokemon cards to you because that is a level of nerdiness that I cannot ascribe to. But I will tell you, there's something about, like, like mystical creatures and leveling up and slapping it down and, yeah, and I don't know. But he was super, super into it. And he would, we would, he would come to the store with me, and um, the, the Pokemon cards were usually near the checkout. And so he, I would be checking out, and he would say, Mama, can I go look at the cards? And I'm like, sure, go look at the cards. Um... And so he started begging for Pokemon cards. So he would say, Mama, please, can I have some? And, you know, we were a young 
couple, young family, some, one of them was in seminary, uh, and we, we just couldn't afford all the little extras. And so I was like, no, you can't have a car, set of cards every time we go. And he was like, mom, I'm really into the cards. I really need to level up. And I'm like, Tyson, I really love paying our bills. We really need to eat up. Like, no, we're not going to do that. And so I did, you know, give him Pokemon cards every once in a while for chores or gifts, but it just wasn't enough for him. So this was during the school year that his Pokemon love just kind of like hit its peak. And I started noticing as I was cleaning out his backpack at the end of the school day that there were extra Pokemon cards that I didn't buy. Like he had way more, like I kind of knew how many was in a set and he had way more than what he should have. And so I pulled him aside to me one day and I said, Tyson, where are you getting all these Pokemon cards from? And he looked up at me, a little eight-year-old self with his eyes really big. I could see the wheels turning in his head and he's, he's trying to work that lie out real, real good. And he says, well, mama, I trade the cards you give me for better ones at school. And I'm thinking, wow, how entrepreneurial of you. And then also, we have this rule in our family that we believe our children unless they prove us otherwise. And so he's telling me he's trading cards. I don't know how all the slapping yeah works out. So sure, that's what he's doing. So then he goes to the school year. He has a healthy, good, like, little collection of Pokemon cards. And then the summer hits. I know this child is not trading Pokemon cards at school, but then I started to find rappers, Pokemon rappers, stuck underneath the couch and in the back seat in the cup holders, stuck in the chairs. I even found one, and this is how I knew something was going on, like on the co- in the coffee maker, the, on the counter, like behind the coffee maker. I think he was aiming for something else and then it fell behind there. I don't know, but that's really dumb to hide it where I go every single day. <laughs> so I call him to me and I'm like, Tyson, where are you getting Pokemon cards from? And his eyes get really big, and I see the wheels turning. And I was like, Tyson, you're not trading cards because I'm finding rappers. So where are you getting Pokemon cards from? And I look at him, and all of a sudden, I just see resolve, like just surrender. And he says, well, Mom, sometimes when we go to Target, I take a pack of Pokemon cards. Right? (gasps) Right? Yes. (laughs) And I am, I'm so angry, partly because my mom was in retail all of my life coming up. I mean, at that point, my mom had gone back to school to get her MBA to realize her dream of starting a small business. So I understood the systemic stuff that was going on about how it was affecting the corporation and and how it even affects employees where they have to hire more people to make up so that they have more people around watching for little kids who love to steal Pokemon cards. So I'm explaining to him, like, this is not right. We We have to make this better. You cannot do this. But then I'm looking at him and he, his, his character is forming. And I'm so frustrated that he is becoming a person who cares so much about things that he cares less about people. And so we have all these dialogues back and forth about why he has to have integrity when we go to Target. And I tell him, I'm going to trust you to no longer take cards when you come to Target with me. And I take the cards he has and I take his allowance and we decide to go back to the store and give the allowance. Or I go back to the store and I give whatever allowance he keeps to make up for what happened. And that, and that kind of scared him straight a little bit. So this was like June where this happened, okay? 
So July comes around and he's still doing good. Coming to Target with me, staying close to me, holding the cart, not going to look at Pokemon cards. Towards the end of July, early August, my son starts talking about the next new series. Like he's really excited and he's talking about leveling up. And I'm like, oh no, here we go. Level up language again. Okay, let's do this. Let's, let's mom this thing up. And, and so I'm kind of like hyper aware of Pokemon cards because he's bringing it up again. Well, then my birthday comes up. My birthday is, uh, is early August and he wakes up that morning and he just has a fervor for Target and, that I have never seen in an eight-year-old before. He's like, mama, happy birthday. And I'm like, thank you. Right, let's go to Target, mama, and let's get you all the free stuff you can get. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, get your free Starbucks and then use all those gift cards you've been saving. Like, let's just go and buy you everything you want. That will be my gift to you is I will go to Target with you. <laughs> Great. So then he, 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 he gets his little brother. Like he, he, he says, Let's, we're going to go together, mom. It'll be a mom and son's trip. And I'm like, okay, all right. Now you're speaking my language. Like all of us together, their sister stayed home with their dad. And so we went to Target. And he, I had never seen a child as enthusiastic about Target. Yes, mama, get that latte. Oh, get that, get that candle. Mom, you look so pretty in that cardigan. This kid was just laying it on thick. And I was just, just eating it all up. So we get... We get through our checkout, we get in the car, and all of a sudden I start seeing the boys with their little heads together, like laughing, and then they're like high-fiving, and I was like, these boys are not high-fiving because they love their mama well. These boys did something. So we get to a stop sign about a minute into our drive. We get to a stop sign, and I look at the boys, and I say, do you have Pokemon cards back there? And I see four sets of eyes get really big and all the wheels turning in their heads. And I was like, if you have Pokemon cards, when we get home, your father is going to deal with you. And they're like, no, mom, we don't have Pokemon cards. I was like, all right. When we get home, I'm going to check the back seat for Pokemon cards and wrappers. Well, then the light turns and I accelerate and all of a sudden, out the rearview mirrors, out the side mirrors, I see Pokemon cards just flapping in the wind. Leaving a trail of Pokemon cards and wrappers. So I get home and I'm furious. And I'm that mama angry where like I'm silent. So you know, this is serious. And I just walked both of them to their father. And I was like, and I told him what happened. And I said, I'm going to go sit out in the courtyard. And I walked out. And I stay out there for a couple minutes, and then I come back in. And, and as, I, as, I coming ba- as I'm coming back in, I'm hearing my husband talking primarily to Tyson. And he's saying, do you know that your mom and I have trusted you? We asked you to have integrity when you went to Target, and you didn't. And it's more than just taking the cards, Tyson. Do you know that now, when your mother thinks back to this birthday... She will remember that you use her relationship to go to Target to steal Pokemon cards. Do you know that when we ask you to have integrity, we're not just asking you to be a good kid that doesn't steal. We're asking you to love people enough that you don't want to steal. Integrity is about relationships. 
when we look in our passage today, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, I want us to explore what integrity will look like when we think of integrity as not the things we do or don't do or the promises we make and don't make, but integrity as an act and practice of love. We're in Matthew 5, uh, verses 33 through 37, and this passage can feel really dry and uninspired to some. Because in this passage, Jesus is primarily talking about oath-telling, which is something we really don't do here. We don't, we don't think about the things we say as oaths. The closest thing we get, we think about our vows, and vows are usually offered in a very specific circumstance, like a wedding, where we all kind of agree, yes, you should hold true to those vows. But we don't think about our regular interactions as oaths. That's just not the language we use. And so it can feel irrelevant to us. But I would suggest to you that this teaching of Jesus is paradigm shifting. It's a part of a collection of sermonettes about the state of our heart and how we relate to each other within the larger Sermon of the Mount, which is Jesus's overarching invitation into the way of the kingdom of God, where we get to be loved by God and love others well so we can be ambassadors of the kingdom of God. So let's take a look at our passage as we think about what Jesus is saying to us when it comes to oaths, but more specifically, when it comes to integrity, and maybe even more precisely, when it comes to love, integrity as an act of love. So Matthew 5, 33 through 37 says, Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for who cannot make even one hair white or black? All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Now, to understand this sermonette, like I said, a little more clearly, we need to back up a little bit. We need to look at Matthew 5, 17, because what Jesus does is he actually couched this teaching and a bunch of other teachings that have the same rhetorical phrase. And that phrase is, and you'll see it on the screen behind me, you have heard it said. So Matthew 5, 17 goes like this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, if anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of God. Okay, so the rhetorical phrase that I want us to pay attention to is, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus uses this over and over in this section of teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And so what Jesus is doing when he's doing that is he is showing us how not only to, to live by the law, not only to um, teach the law, but how the law can be fulfilled. 
So not, not just the letter of the law, maybe, but the spirit of the law, the full embodiment uh, of living into what that law means, its purpose for being. So part of Woodland's uh, theological tapestry, if you will, is we, we really uh, ascribe to an Anabaptist framework. And so when you hear, uh, when you kind of hear this teaching around, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you might come across a phrase called third way. So what Jesus is doing before he even gets to the particulars like murder and adultery and oath, which is what we're going to deal with today, he is setting up this new way of living in the world. Not a way that abolishes the law, but fulfills it to its truest, most authentic, most life-giving, most kingdom extent. So third way is often this way that, that uh, doesn't choose a side, but creates a third creative different way. I want to caution you when you hear someone say third way that it's not a compromised way or a middle way where you're taking a little bit of this and you're taking a little bit of that and you're stirring it all up and boom. Third way is actually a creative, like I said, different, out-of-the-box response to, a, to the temptation to choose either-or thinking. Here's an example. So we've been, we've been tracking with the story for the past couple of weeks of the men caught with stones, or as it says in the Bible, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Okay? This is an example. What Jesus did in this moment is an example of third-way living. See, when the woman was brought before Jesus, he had two options. Condemn her or condone her behavior. Jesus chose neither. What Jesus did, in fact, was he knelt down to de-escalate the conflict in the space. And we don't know what he wrote. There's a bunch of suggestions of what he could have written. Maybe the names of the women that those men were caught with or specific sins in those men's lives, men's life. He could have been doodling to calm his own self down because of the way they were dehumanizing this woman. We have no idea. But what we do know is that Jesus didn't choose an, an either way. What he did was say, those who have not sinned cast the first stone. You see, the third way was this way of not choosing an either side, but honoring the humanity of everybody involved and inviting them into a new way of thinking, a change of heart. So when we talk about third way, if Jesus is saying that uh, he has not come to abolish the law, but fulfill the law, when we talk about third way, it's important for us to know what law Jesus is talking about. I mean, of course, we're there are a bunch of laws in the Old Testament that he could be talking about, but Jesus actually points us to the, the two primary laws, commandments of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to look at them in Matthew 22. So Jesus says, uh, he was asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And the teacher replied, or Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So third way for me is this really frustrating way that Jesus teaches because it actually requires me to be a little uh, creative and it also requires me to rely on the Holy Spirit. I can't just choose a side and say, okay, I'm following all the rules of this side. I'm holy. I'm good. 
I have to now partner with Jesus in creating a new third way. And like I said, this third way is predicated on these two ideas. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So now that we know that Jesus is doing a paradigm shift away from choosing either side and creating this new way of relating and being, now let's take a look at the oath passage through this kind of third way lens. Okay, so let's look at it. It's going to be on the screen again behind us. So Jesus says, again, you have heard was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Okay, so what is going on here now? If we're going to chart this new third way that is rooted in love of God and love of neighbor, how do we live out this passage? Well, first we got to kind of understand what's going on culturally in that passage because what Jesus is doing is he is addressing some things that are going on in the ways that people are relating to each other that is preventing them from, from loving God or loving neighbor, Okay. So what Jesus is, is saying, is, or what Jesus is highlighting is something that all of them would have known. That there were just kind of some pervasive lack of integrity. One was kind of the way that, the, that you just kind of interacted with each other with a lack of integrity because there was really no way of knowing whether or not somebody was good for their word. And so what they would do is they would use oaths to promise to each other that they would fulfill some, some agreement that they had. And so they would say, you know, they would promise... Uh, they would promise to, you know, I will give you these goats and I will give it to you by this time. And I swear by the altar of Mercury, which was one of the Roman gods at that time. Or they would say, um, I will pay you 10 shekels and I swear by the bricks of the altar of Sancus, which was another god at that time. And so what would happen when they had this kind of cultural lack of integrity is that they would use these oaths as a way of, of gaining somebody's trust, but then when they couldn't follow through with their promise, they would then say something like, but I swore by the bricks, not the pillars. So they would use it as a loophole to get out of doing what they said they would do. And so there's that cultural kind of just using oaths flippantly and then using oaths to, uh, to continue uh, building mistrust or oppressing people. And so Jesus is saying, don't be like that. But also there is another lack of integrity going on that I think some of us can relate to. So the Pharisees would, would swear by God and swear by heaven, and then they would swear that they live by a certain standard or certain way, but then they would live differently. And they would make choices that continue again to oppress people or harm people. And so what Jesus is saying is, don't be like that. Don't be people who say one thing, especially people who, who others look to to say, you follow God, you are living the way of God, and yet you don't. I did a quick little survey of 20-somethings in my life. 
20-somethings who maybe appreciate Jesus but have no desire to be uh, in any sort of church context. And I asked them, what is the primary reason? If it's not theological, like what is the primary reason for you not wanting to be in a church community? And almost all of them said something to the effect that Christians lack humility and they lack honesty. That they say one thing, but they do or support something else. And this lack of integrity is preventing them from fully entrusting themselves into relationship with other Christians. And when it all boils down to it, what Jesus is exposing in this passage is something that I have noticed in the ways that we, are, we can interact with each other. Jesus is exposing a transactional way of engaging with each other. Transactional in that, you know, you do this thing for me and I will do this thing for you. Quid pro quo, tit for tat. And I want to say that not all transactional relationships are inherently bad. I have something of a transactional relationship with my hairdresser. I agree to, when I set an appointment that I'm going to show up, I agree to her rates and I go and I, I get the service and I pay her. But what Jesus is actually challenging us to in this passage is to move past just transactional living with each other and into a covenantal way of living with each other. So when I talk about covenantal living, it, that pushes past transactional, well, I think of how I view my hairdresser as a person who God loves. And so I tip her really well. And I remember things about her life and I ask her about them. And I send her pictures of me styled with my hair saying, thank you so much. I feel so great. I am continuing that relationship with her as a person because I love God and I love her as my neighbor. Around here, when we think about covenant, we really lean on Paul Eddy's work. Um, and he has this beautiful uh, de definition of covenant. Committed, community-based, kinship-creating, agape love relationship. Simplified, love, formalized. So what Jesus is actually asking us in this passage is to not just limit our integrity to the things we say and actually following through with that. What Jesus is inviting us to is moving away from transactional interactions and into covenantal living. This covenantal space is this third way of moving through the world with others. When we reject the lore of, tr of transitional thinking about our relationships and we begin to explore covenantal living, this is where we get to live out that agape love that we receive from God and that we live towards others. It's rooted in love of God and love of others. So let, let us consider oaths as our way of living out love. Let us consider our integrity as loving our neighbor well. Let us consider integrity as being loving in our relationships. So what does that look like? Well, there's a quote that I love from St. Francis of Assisi that I think really lines up with how Jesus ends this teaching that says, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. St. Francis of Assisi says uh, that a life of integrity is described as uh, is not, it is not, no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. So I'll say that again. 
that a life of integrity looks like this. That it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. This quote is often misquoted as preach the gospel at all times when necessary use words. You see, Jesus limiting our words, taking away those oaths and saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no, is Jesus saying, your walking should be your preaching. That when you show up and you say you're going to do something, that people believe you because you've lived a life of integrity and they know your character. That you have already been living this, the good news of God's love, that it flows out of you to others. You don't need anything else. You just need yes or no. Like when I asked my husband to help me this past couple of weeks, I went with the SOMA students down south. Um, I've, been, I've been going into the SOMA ministry um, with Pastor Kevin, and we have been partnering together to um, explore what is race and peacemaking look like. What is a kingdom third way that we can engage with around this issue of race conciliation? So I've gone in there twice a week or twice a month for the past nine months of SOMA, just exploring this with them. And so we decided to end our time together uh, with this trip, a, a civil rights pilgrimage down south where we visited important places in the civil rights movement and give us hope and a vision for race conciliation for the future. And because I was working so hard on woodland stuff to try to get the group ready and get myself ready, I asked my husband to take care of the home front. We recently had a type 1 di diabetes diagnosis with our middle boy, and I had a lot of anxiety about going on a long road trip down south. And, so, and then there was all the other aspects of it. And so I was like, can you just take over that, and I will do this. And I asked him like that on a Saturday before the trip was, the trip was on a Friday. And he was like, yes, I will do it. Well, come Wednesday, it doesn't look like he's doing it the way I want him to do it. So I go to him and I'm like, didn't you say you were going to do this? He said, yes. I said yes. And I'm doing it. And then he goes to show me like all the little things that he has been doing that just doesn't, that aren't showy that I, I wouldn't have seen. And that was just a conviction to me because my husband had shown himself as a person of integrity and his yes was yes, and I could trust it. Let us be people like that, that when we say yes, our yes is yes, and when we say no, our no is no, because our lives are our witness. So how do we begin forming this third way loving covenantal uh, filter for how we engage with others? Well, there are three things that I reflect on as I am thinking about my engagement with others in order to love to know to receive God's love, acknowledge the love of God, and then love others, okay? The first uh, thing that I say is that we are all image bearers. If I remember that I am made in the image of God and the other person that I am engaging with is made in the image of God, when I interact with them, I'm mindful of God. It gives me a humility to acknowledge his presence, that he is seeing our interaction and he is seeing my heart. I am reminded of God's love for both of us. And I want God's best for them. They are made in the image of God. They matter to God. And so their well-being in this interaction should matter to me. The other thing I remember is that we are broken. While my goal is to have 100% effective uh, integrity, a, a rate of uh, integrity, uh, I know that I don't always meet that, that 
mark. And so I have to rely on the grace of God to know that I am broken. So when I make a mistake, when I don't follow through, I am the first one to say, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Please forgive me. But also it gives me the capacity to have grace for someone when they make a mistake, when they miss the mark of integrity. And then also the last one that we're going to hang out on as I close is that we are all beloved. If I remember that we are all beloved, my desire for honesty moves past my reputation and into right relatedness. I've been thinking a lot about this concept of the beloved community, particularly because I was with the SOMA students down south studying uh, places, um, being in places and studying the life of Dr. King. I knew, I've known about the beloved community for quite some time now. I've rooted my anti-racism work in the concept of the beloved community. And so when I think about the beloved community, I think that what, what Dr. King made popular from a philosopher named Josiah Royce is this idea of being beloved, owning our belovedness, and then proclaiming belovedness for others so that we can be a community of beloveds. And that's what integrity rooted in love, integrity reflected in relationship is. It's becoming the beloved community. Dr. King describes the beloved community this way. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform oppressors into friends. The type of love I am taught that I stress here is not eros, a sort of aesthetic or romantic love, and not philia, a sort of reciprocal love, tit for tat, between personal friends. But it is agape love, which is understanding goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. It's a love of God working in the lives of men. It's a love that may well be the salvation of our civilization. Charles Marsh, in his book, Beloved Community, goes on to describe beloved community. I think it's really important for us to consider this when we are forming our relationship with each other um, in love so that we can be people of integrity, so that our yes is yes and our no is no. Here's what Charles Marsh says. King's concept of love was, not surely, was surely not the platitudinous, all you need is love. It was rather the passion to make human life and social existence a parable of God's love for the world. It was agape, the outrageous venture of loving the other without conditions, a risk and a costly sacrifice. Agape, love. Agape love is the language of the beloved community because we are the ones who model the sacrificial love of Jesus. We are the ones who form this third way of loving God and loving others in the way we interact with each other. It empowers us to resist the vision and expose loopholes, and it empowers us to have integrity in thought, deed, and action toward each other and even our enemies. And I'm encouraged because I've seen this happen. So I know beloved community sounds like a pie in the sky, like grand idea that we can't live into, but I have seen it right here at Woodland. I've seen it in Soma. I've seen it in the way that Kevin Callahan has crafted that, that nine-month discipleship program so that, we, they, that his students can be fully formed in Christ's likeness. I've seen it in the ways that he has modeled humility and honesty to them, and I've seen how they model humility and honesty to each other. And I saw it on this trip. 
while we were exposed to violent, horrible things to do, that have to do with our country's racial history, that we talked about ways of being peacemakers, of moving forward in unity and love with each other. I've seen the beloved community right here at Woodland, and I am grateful. But I know some of you might be saying as I'm closing, okay, Oshita, great, great, great. Interact with each other, hold promises, love God, love others. Right, right, right. But Jesus is talking about words. Like he's talking about actual things we're saying to each other. So what do you have to say about that? I got you. Yes. Truth telling is an act of love and a practice of peace. When we are people of our word, we love God and love others really well, and we become the peacemakers this world needs. When we live in covenant with each other, because we have rejected transactional ways of living with each other, when we choose to become the beloved community, we tell the truth. We tell the truth even when it's inconvenient, even when it makes things uncomfortable and awkward, even when it reveals the need for more work and a long-haul vision for the future until we can live at peace with each other. And in this moment of truth-telling, we as Jesus followers have a responsibility to challenge the way our system uses loopholes to exploit the vulnerable because our culture is so rooted in transactional living, transactional ideas and policies and systems. So let us forge a third way, kingdom people, as we consider the words of Jesus. Let us move from transactional thinking and embrace covenantal living because we are all made in the image of God. We are all broken and yet we get to form the beloved community. So my son, I got his permission to share this with you. Um, and as we were talking, he was telling me, yeah, mom, that was really hard, that whole Pokemon thing. That was really embarrassing in a lot of ways. And, and so what I did was I, I went up to my room and I really thought about what you and, your, what you and dad said. And then do you remember what I did when I came down? I was like, that's right. I'd almost forgotten. So my son came down and he had written on a piece of paper the word integrity. And he had wrote, written it in, in black ink and then he covered it in crayon and then he held it up to us and he said, mom and dad, I want to be a person of integrity because I love mom and I love my brothers and I love my friends. And he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this under TJ's bed, because he was in a bunk bed with his brother. I'm going to put it under TJ's bed, and I'm going to tape it there, and every morning when I wake up, I'm going to remember that I want to be a person of integrity. And then when I go to sleep, I'm going to ask God to help me be a person of integrity. So as I close, I'm going to take a, a note, a page from Tyson's book, and invite you to be people who think about integrity as a choice you make every day that you choose to love God, and you choose to love your neighbor, and you choose to become the beloved community because that's what this world needs to see. So join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for this group and this time. Thank you for our friends who are watching online, and thank you for our friends who are in this room. And thank you for this challenging invitation to model a third way. We need you, Jesus. We need you. So as we go in this, from this place, teach us to be the peacemakers in our context that, need, that we need to be. Teach us how to model honesty and humility. Show us what a third way um, would look like in the ways we engage with others. We need your help, Jesus. 
because we, we want to reflect your kingdom of God right where we are. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. All right. A few things before you head out. So first, if you need prayer, there's prayer in person in the back. And um, just go to the, uh, the gathering area and you'll be directed. Um, also, there's prayer online at w, uh, whchurch.org slash Sunday-prayer. It's on the screen. Um, also, if you would like to kind of dialogue more about this, this was a sermon that was, is really relational. And so we encourage you to seek out relational spaces to process it. The gathering groups are a great opportunity for that. Those are on Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning, and you can sign up for that online. The third thing is Shauna Moore and Dan Kent and I will break, out, break down the sermon and try to squeeze out every last of goodness. I hope that there are some in this uh, for us. And so that will happen Tuesday on YouTube, Tuesday afternoon, so you can watch that. Now, a couple of things. The first is um, we just want to encourage you to sign up for next week's service so that we can be able to know how many people are going to be in the room and we can keep this room really safe so that we can continue gathering together. And keeping safety in mind, the CDC has some regulations um, around keeping this, this space clean and making sure that we can prepare for the next time we gather together. So we're going to ask you, even though this is 11 o'clock service, to take your conversations all the way outdoors um, and so that our team can get this space ready for next week where we will continue to explore how we can be peacemakers and live out the kingdom way. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And thank you, all of our mentors of many. Amen.